0: From UNH, Cooperative Extension, this is Over-Informed on Tree Fruit IPM. Hold on to your hats, podcast listeners, and get ready for a psychosexual adventure, because we're talking about moth sex. Well, excuse me, moth sex pheromones, or the odors moths use to find that special someone and start a family. For decades, entomologists have been identifying and synthesizing moth sex pheromones, and these odors are incredibly powerful. And they really have to be because insects are so small in this big, big world, For example, I was part of a project years ago involving a moth pest of wine grapes. Just being in a car with the pheromone lures was enough for this pheromone to embed itself in my clothing even after several washes made me incredibly attractive to these moths. I often found myself in outdoor social situations with one or more very enthusiastic but confused male moths hovering around me. IPM specialists use pheromones to monitor pest populations for IPM decision-making. That could be to determine how severe a pest infestation is, or to determine proper timing of chemical applications based on some susceptible period of that insect's life stage. Pheromones can also be used as another tool in the IPM toolbox to disrupt behavior, and therefore disrupt the success of a pest insect you know, in being such a pest. <laughs> the best example of a widely adopted behavioral control is mating disruption. It's exactly what it sounds like, and orchardists are currently disrupting the mating habits of several species of insects, including today's pest, the peach tree borer. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the basics. There is a fact sheet on the Extension website written by Alan Eaton and George Hamilton titled peach Tree Borers in New Hampshire. So check that out, but I will summarize. Adult moths lay their eggs at the base of peach trees and the larvae bore into the trunk. And that larval feeding is what girdles the tree. This damage leads to a slow decline over a few years, which can often go unnoticed until it's too late and that tree needs to be replaced. Upon closer inspection, you might see pupil skins, or what we call exuvium, left behind by new moths that emerge as adults. But you're also likely to see a gummy exudate coming from these injury sites. This is the tree responding to attack, kind of like how we produce boogers to block up our nose from pathogen attack. And this gummy exudate kind of kind of looks like boogers too. Best management practices are to target egg-laying adults during their peak flight period, and that usually occurs in July or August. Physical barriers like latex paint can contribute to preventing oviposition, but many commercial growers rely on yearly applications of insecticide to the trunks to disrupt egg laying. You can use traps to monitor flights for better timing of controls, but the insecticides people rely on for peach tree borer are either very expensive or particularly gnarly chemicals adding insult to injury, the industry standard of gnarly chemicals probably won't be available for much longer. But there is a very good non-toxic alternative and that is mating disruption on which I will now over inform you. Peach tree boar is native to North America, first described in 1823 by Thomas Say, an American entomologist. For more information on this American pest named by an American, it is only fitting for me to call on a colleague down in Blessed by God, West Virginia.
1: Hi, my name is Daniel Frank. I'm an Extension Entomology Specialist at West Virginia University.
0: How do you know that you have a problem with, with, with a borer?
1: Yeah. <laughs> So that can be tricky because uh in their cryptic. Uh, dogwood bore and peach tree boar are gonna be uh, on the trunks of the usually on the trunks of the tree. That's where you'll you'll find the infestations. Uh, peach tree borers is more in the, the scaffold limbs of the of the, of the tree. But often you, you you don't know that you have a problem with them until you're actually looking, you know, at the trees, at the base of the trees, looking for uh, larval infestations, looking for pupa cases that you know, that are sticking out of the um, out of the bark crevices where where they've been feeding. Um, so it, it really does take some monitoring, scouting efforts to go through and and actually get on your hands and knees and you know look at the base of these trees and see. See what you see. Uh, otherwise, you don't know you have a problem until you start seeing the decline. You know, the tree's just not healthy looking, not maybe not performing as well. Uh, and then, then you take a closer look, and then you realize, okay, that's that's the borer injury. You know, there's just so many interesting ways um, that you can potentially manage for them. So you have, you know, the, the chemical route, the insecticide route. You know, people are looking at nematodes as a as a potential option to, for control. Um, what I've been interested in, and, and what you know, my PhD project was on, uh, was behavioral manipulation. So trying to affect the behavior of the insect to the detriment of, of, of that pest in some way. So basically what you're doing with mating disruption is, is you're misdirecting the males. So you're basically putting these pheromone dispensers, they look like little twist ties, tie those on the branches at a, at a rate, certain rate. Uh, Per acre, Uh, and those pheromone dispensers are releasing this artificial sex pheromone that um, interferes with those males looking for mates. So they they can't mate. That population, you know, females can't lay eggs. That population basically goes down.
0: I'm going to interrupt Daniel here to go into a little more depth on how mate finding normally goes. The moths pupate, and when they first emerge as adults, it will take a little while before females are reproductively mature, before they have mature eggs. When a female moth is ready and she's filling herself, she'll find a nice spot to perch and emit a pheromone. The wind carries plumes of this pheromone through her habitat, and that plume is hopefully detected by a male of her species. At the same time, male peach tree borers are out getting their swerve on, and I mean that literally swerving around. When males are searching for that special someone, they fly in what we call a casting flight. They kind of meander back and forth, kind of la-dee-da, back and forth, until their antennae pick up an attractive chemical. Detection of this attractive pheromone stimulates a surge upwind for as long as they detect the pheromone. If they lose the scent, they may go back to that casting flight until they pick it up again. It's a real pain, right? But you got to do what you got to do if you're little and you don't have great eyes. There are tons of insect species where the male has these ginormous plumose antennae that have um, lots of surface area and lots of sensory organs to pick up even the smallest amount of these odors. So you can imagine what happens when you fill the orchard with a whole bunch of this stuff. Mating disruption has become the industry standard for several pest complexes in western orchards, but it's not widely adopted in eastern orchards. Um, back to Daniel about why this is so for peach tree borer.
1: When looking at mating disruption for peach tree borers, you know, all of the studies if were looking at larger acreages of peaches. You know, they generally recommend 10 acres, uh, not not less than five, um, which is most of the acres of, you know, peach blocks that we have uh, in, in West Virginia. It's going to be less than five. I think our average is somewhere around about two and a half acres. And so I was interested. Well, you know, would mating disruption be effective in these these small block orchards? These orchards that are less than than five acres. So, you know, I started talking with growers and you know, see if anybody was interested, in maybe you know, trying this out. You know, I'd pay for the for the uh, for the mating disruption and and you know let them have a conventional treatment where they can apply chlorpyrifos and manage them, you know, the, the way they normally would. And, uh, I did, did find a few takers and, and, um, uh, one of the growers I worked with, um, you know, was was pretty good, and he, he had three uh, three peach blocks that we set aside for mating disruption. Three peach blocks that we set aside for conventional management, which was application of chlorpyrifos after harvest, post harvest. Well, what we found was that the the mating disruption worked. Uh, it worked in these small-blocked orchards. Um, we we had. Uh, essentially trap shutdown, meaning that, you know, the monitoring traps that we had in these orchards, they weren't catching moths, which is telling you that mating disruption is working. So if the males can't find the traps in the orchard, uh, they can't find females too and when we did the damage evaluations we showed that there was no significant difference between the infestation levels in orchards that were getting the mating disruption versus orchards that were being treated with chlorpyrifos and in some instances you know numerically the infestation was was a little bit lower in those those uh, mating disruption blocks so it was it was quite effective um, award-
0: So this is great news. Even though conventional wisdom has told us mating disruption is only for big acreages, we have strong evidence that mating disruption is just as good as the industry standard in an eastern orchard. So everybody should run out and drop the couple of hundred dollars an acre it costs to get these pheromone dispensers and get disrupting. Well, not so fast. There are some caveats. Back to my discussion with Daniel. Daniel.
1: Uh, some things that you do have to consider though uh, which you probably wouldn't in these larger orchards and that's immigration by mated females into the orchard uh, so if you're you know if your peach orchard is just kind of in the middle of nowhere with you know you don't have many Many other peaches around, uh, you really wouldn't have to worry about that. But if you have a lot of peach orchards nearby, you would have to worry about those those mated females coming from those orchards into that orchard. To-
0: when it comes to when it comes to peach tree borer, is a you know pretty is the host fidelity pretty high? Like it's not like there's a lot of alternate hosts that would be producing outside populations.
1: Well. So so peaches are stone fruit, prunus, um, and that's basically the the wild host, any any prunus. So uh, I don't know, do you have a lot of wild cherries? I've I've actually seen them in peach tree bore in forests. I've seen a female fly by and I'm why that was a peach tree bore, where'd that come from? And then you kinda look around and well I guess there are some wild cherries around here, so maybe it's it's going after those too. So some other ways that mating disruption, you know, may not may not be the right fit for a particular orchard if if it has a strong slope. So if your orchard is on the hillside, um, you're not gonna get even distribution of that pheromone uh, throughout that orchard block. Uh, So that's something you have to watch out for. If you have a lot of gaps, uh, especially in in between rows, um, again, you're not going to get even distribution of that pheromone throughout that orchard block. And that's really what you need to get get good mating disruption to occur is, is even distribution of that pheromone. So if your pheromone sources are just kind of, you know, in clumps here and there, and they're not evenly distributed throughout that orchard, you're, you're going to have breakdown. Um, some other things would, would be like infestation level. If you have really high infestation levels, you're going to have to supplement mating disruption probably with chemical controls at least for the for the first year we've seen that with other insect pests too coddling moth you know we have mating disruption for coddling moth but if you have really high coddling moth pressure you you need to supplement that with insecticides too to bring that population down so there's different mechanisms i guess of of how you know mating disruption works and one of those is competitive attraction so basically you know Following these these pheromone sources instead of the females, so you have these males wasting their time following these these point sources in in the orchard instead of locating females. But if you have a lot of insects in the orchard already, a lot of females, you know, the chances of them finding female go up. And then when you have them in like closer proximity to each other, uh, they start using maybe other things besides olfaction to locate mates. So visual cues and things like that.
0: Some caveats, but some caveats we can live with. Daniel mentioned that there's a range of labeled rates for dispensers that can be adjusted based on pest pressure, too. Is mating disruption right for you? Do you still have questions? You can tweet at me. I'm at Wallingbug on Twitter, or you could shoot me an email. It's anna.wallingford at unh.edu. Write to me, especially if you're in New Hampshire, but even if you're growing tree fruit in the East and have some concerns about trunk borers in general. Uh, especially when chlorpyrifos is no longer available. Let me know. It's something we're all paying attention to. That's it for this week. Thanks to Daniel Frank of West Virginia University, and special thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Informed on IPM is a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire New Hampshire counties and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu. It's really, really cool to see the difference of how extension people talk versus researchers. Uh-oh. I've already seen a big, like it's just it's so much easier to edit someone who has extension experience versus someone who's like, oh, and another thing, and this, and this, and this. <laughs> <laughs>